Welcome to the Basin Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber, and today we have a guest, Matt Freeman. Hello, Matt Freeman. We are here to talk about a, well, what I consider a interesting economics thing that's been going around in the rational sphere lately. Uh, it started with when Seeing Like a State became a big thing. Is Seeing Like a State a book? Is it a series of blog posts? Is it a So Seeing Like manifesto? a State <laughs> is a book. Uh, I guess you could call it a manifesto, possibly, that says the state has a interest in making the people that it rules legible to the state and that this destroys a lot of value for the people that are being ruled in order to make that rule possible. It gave a lot of examples, but one of the examples it gave was that a lot of people didn't have last names in medieval Europe and the states imposed that on people and started demanding that everyone in a village have a last name so that they knew who was living there and who, how many people were there that they could tax. And you used the word legible. Yeah, well, there was a, a distinct problem with the rulers knowing what they are ruling over. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, a good way to put it. If, if you're a mayor of a village, you know everyone in your village. They're within your monkey sphere, more or less. You know what's happening there. But once it gets up higher beyond that, you're sending in strangers to come into the town and assess taxes, and they may not speak the same language as the people, they may not use the same measurements as the people there, and it is very hard for the people to assess taxes and recruit troops and just rule efficiently because they don't know what's there. They don't know who's living there, they don't know how much money they make, and the state tries to impose order in a way that the state can read those things and it makes life very difficult for people on the ground. It gets confusing really fast. Yes. And, and it gets hard really fast. I think my... So the example I actually like is not from seeing like a state itself. It is from a blog post uh, on Sam Zidat is the name of the site. Uh, I forget the guy's name. I'll look it up and insert it here after we're done talking. <laughs> Lou Keep. The example he gave was, uh, let's say, like a inner city slum somewhere, maybe Detroit or something, where the streets don't really have names anymore. They've been torn off. No one keeps track of where they are. People just sort of live and get by in a semi, semi-anarchic state. And the state comes in and says, you know what? We're going to start giving you guys health care. We want to uh, be able to get ambulances in here when there's an emergency. And that is a problem for the people driving the ambulances if they get a call saying, hey, so-and-so is having a heart attack over at this address because... There's no street signs anywhere. The streets aren't named. They have to stop, get out the ambulance, ask someone, where does Greg live? And they're like, oh, Greg lives over there beyond John's house. Take a right. Go past what used to be the rec center until it flooded. And John's house will be on the left up on the second floor. This is an issue for the state. So the state comes in and imposes rules, puts names on all the streets, has, has them categorized, puts numbers on all the houses. And that at first doesn't seem too bad, but it's... A confusing mess down there in the slums. A lot of the uh, streets are torn up. They wind in weird ways. So they go through whatever. We're going to come in here, bulldoze a few things, make it a nice, even grid. We know where everything is. And while we're here, what is it with this chaos you people got? We're going to make a residential district and a commercial district. So you can go to where you need to uh, do all your shopping at once if you have to in during the day. And at this point, they can now uh, assess where all the businesses are, so they can start uh, asking the businesses to track how much they're making, start taxing those businesses. 
On paper, this looks great, because before what was a slum is now a nice ordered place with uh, street names, it's got a grid, it's got uh, the wealth accounted for. So before, where it was just like kind of a mess of people living, you know how much money is being made there. The, the tracked wealth has increased from zero to some positive number. But the people living there aren't quite so happy. The old man who lived up on the second floor in a uh, tenement and just walked down to his local store can't do that anymore because now he's in the residential district, the store's in the commercial district. He needs help to get to the commercial district. His neighbors perhaps moved so that they could work where the store uh, is now, and he doesn't know the people that he works with anymore. Before, since residential and commercial was all mixed up, there would be teenagers loitering on street corners. The shop owner could pay them a few bucks to help carry in some boxes or whatever they need. Now that's gone. All employment has to be official with uh, forms and, and W-2s and all that. So the teenagers can't get as much work. The old man doesn't get as much help. Social bonds are broken. And after a while, uh, people start getting angry and, and rioting and acting poorly. So the police come in and suddenly these well-ordered streets with the names and everything are really useful for the police state, too. Uh, so the police can help impose their order, and for the people on the ground, everything is terrible because that local knowledge, uh, in seeing like a state, he used the term metis as a term, a type of local knowledge that allows people to work it within their surroundings in a very efficient way, but in a way that is hard for the state to read. Did any of that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up that specific example because I wanted to... I'm the self-declared devil's advocate in this conversation, actually. And I I read that example, and I, I had some issues with it, actually. So I want to bring forth my issues, and then you guys can tell me why I'm wrong. Sure. So, so I thought it was constructed slightly disingenuously. Like, for example, bringing out the details like, it's an old man, and, and the only line in the whole thing that even admits to any positive uh, outcome from, from the whole... Li- what would the verb form of uh, of legibility be? Legibilization mm-hmm. of the of the area is that maybe he lives a little bit longer because the ambulance can get to him. And I would say, okay, let's go to his next door neighbor who has a baby, and the baby suddenly comes down with a terrible fever. First of all, maybe the fever wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been living in squalor, if they'd been living in a nice planned out modernized community and then because they live on the street that's across from the rec center that was flooded instead of living on first street the ambulance can't get to them or or whatever whatever the scenario is you see where i'm going with this their baby dies and they essentially lose far more value than they would have ever gained by living in their nice community that they had before so uh, really the the thrust of what i'm getting at in a more abstract way is that the scenario like the one you just pointed out definitely has a lot of truth and and there are actually real places like brasilia in real life that that are apparently literally that thing happening where where it was like a a planned community that ended up becoming a a planned city actually that ended up becoming a brutalist nightmare but but in this scenario it's like okay in, in our modern western society we we have extremely low infant and child mortality and i think people don't realize that they would trade a lot of um, the opportunity to live in a nice community for not having their children die, for example. That's just one example. Um, so, so in other words, there's no admission of the completely legitimate trade-offs that are being made in order to have this this system that's being discussed. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. When that post was written, he actually stated near the end that 
he did his best to make a as ambiguous a scenario as possible with, for exactly the reason that you brought up, to point out both the good parts and the bad parts that happens when uh, the state comes in and er- interferes. I would say that there used to be a time before the state came in that the young mom could have maybe taken the baby to uh, the local, not doctor per se, but the guy with medical knowledge and he could help her out possibly in some small way. Whereas after the state comes in, he needs licensing, he needs to go through six years of school and four years of residency, and he cannot provide medicine to her anymore, and she cannot afford the medicine that is available through the state, unless the state comes in and gives her money in the form of Medicaid, or just straight cash payments, in which case now you've basically taken a community that used to be self-reliant, if imperfect, and made them now reliant on a cold, impersonal state apparatus. And people in general are not happy in that sort of environment where every interaction is monetized as opposed to the guy you know who's good at medical stuff. Well, can't you still go to that guy if, like, they don't want money anyway and they don't have any training? Then you could, like, across from the hospital I was born in, there's still a sign in the yard that says, you know, Reiki. The person there offers Reiki treatments. Mm -hmm. So if that's all this witch doctor had to offer that sick baby anyway, they can still do that. The doctor himself probably either was forced into retirement by licensing or or went and got all that education and now can't afford to pay his student bills if he isn't charging a lot of money. I guess I wasn't sure what you were getting at when you said possibly trained doctor. Yeah, so I, I was like picturing some like some, some, some knowledge some, okay. who like, worked under another guy with medical knowledge as a kid, not someone with a degree, you know? I was picturing yeah. some charlatan. Okay, so I see where our confusion came from. I feel like there's an empirical fact that the more legible the society the lower the infant mortality like that's an empirical claim that i'm making and i agree i, I may be wrong about it so so but that's no, just one yeah the, the medicine would be objectively worse uh, right. if she went to that guy rather than going to the high-priced doctor but quality of life in general is not it's not often what people want because social ties seem to be a very important thing i ooh okay Crap, I don't want to take all this podcast talking personally, but can I go back to uh, a previous podcast when I was accused of wanting to damn the entire human race so I can be a hero? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> so I-, I was accused, and I will say with some merit, of uh, saying that the entire human race should die if humans can't you know, get it together and be heroic because I want to be able to contribute something. And that got me thinking a whole lot. And afterwards, I went back and talked to Shelly about this. I think... A large part of the problem, not necessarily a problem, I think humans have a psychology where we generally need to be needed by others. Like, we want to be valuable in some way. The way I was always taught to do that was, like, reading The Last Psychiatrist or or talking to my parents, because they were also of this opinion, was that, look, you want people to care about you, give them a reason to care. Go out, do something, uh, build a house, write a novel, do some good in the world, become president, you know? No one will care about you just because you're there. Do something of value, and then they will care. And that's all well and good, but as more and more things get taken by the machines, you no longer are the guy who's the best at hunting the meat. Because that is something I was taken away, and then you're no longer the guy who's best at laying bricks, because that was taken away, and then you're no longer the guy who's best at doing accounting, because that was taken away. And as more and more things get taken by machines, there's no longer a reason to be valued in that way. And I think I've come to the inclusion that I shouldn't put myself 
worth shouldn't tie that to economic output anymore like i can be valued for other reasons but i think if the state comes in and breaks all of people's social ties so that they can't be valuable to each other in any way except through economic transactions that brings us back to the whole feeling of meaninglessness where what we do doesn't matter anymore I, when I was renovating a, uh, a bathroom, my dad came over and helped me with that because he, he does that for a living. And afterwards, I offered to pay him money <laughs> because I, at the time, I had recently read uh, Rand and I was very much into all value should be, you know, exchanged. And he, he laughed this very uncomfortable laugh and was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> You're my son. No, we just do this for each other. And it took me a while to uh, internalize that, but it seems that like once contributions are reduced to I give you this amount of money for what you do, and then if you want something done, you give someone else X amount of money, it feels cold and sterile and people aren't happy with that anymore. And I think the imposing of legibility turns all interactions with other humans into that because the government wants to know how much economic value is in any particular thing for their own measurements, you know, partly so they can say this is our GDP and also partially so they can tax it. But I, I think that's a problem. There used to be a time where, God, and where a guy went to work, right? And his wife stayed home and took care of everything. The wife's work was never valued in number terms. And every now and then you see articles saying, hey, if you had to replace your wife by paying for things here's how much the housekeeper would cost and here's how much the childcare would cost and here's how much the cook would cost etc but we seem to be getting to the point where nowadays both parents work and they do pay for childcare and cooking and cleaning and that doesn't feel like a better thing necessarily and i don't want to go back to the 50s because it's better when everyone can work and do their pursue their life goals in their own way but on the other hand it also it also feels like so much has been monetized and you have to now have both parents working unless yeah. one person is really rich. And I'm going to stop talking now because that's been too long. <laughs> no, you're fine. I wanted to get on just a couple quick things. One, I feel like your outlook that your updated outlook that you no longer need to like keep in mind economic value. By the way, if you hear construction noises in the background, it's happening outside. Sorry. Yeah, sorry um, about that. I feel like your, your perspective that you no longer need to focus on the economic output of your being a person as like how you uh, quantify yourself. Mm. I feel like that's healthier not to do it that way. Cause you're right. Stuff's going away. The other thing I was going to say is that we haven't fully moved into the, like the high modernity, which might be the, uh, like the verb for, or high modernization, which might be the verb for legibility legibilityization in that your dad is still able to come over and help build the bathroom. Right? Mm -hmm. Like those types of transactions still exist. So maybe we're at the sweet spot where, you can pay for goods and services if you want them. You don't, you know, and it is regulated in such a way that, uh, or maybe it is uh, regulated by the state on some level and by like competition on another level to where there's, you know, you're not completely fucked if you need a new bathroom and you're like, well, the only person within a hundred miles who does it, you know, charges this insane amount because they're the only person within a hundred miles. So I can't get a new bathroom. So that the, the regulation and the amount of, I guess, infrastructure there maybe is, is in one way good. And it's not like you can't do it on a, I doing this because I like you basis as well, right? Yeah, my, my thought on that is that I, I don't disagree at all that, that value is being destroyed through this process of legibilization. It's more that I feel like as creatures, we are extremely driven by loss aversion. And what tends to happen is without necessarily explicitly making this contract, we as a society and even as a, you know, a planetary society have been trending toward increasingly making 
contracts that sacrifice, call it freedom, call it the way that you would prefer to live in exchange for safety and security. So you have you have those those gridded streets. That means the ambulance can get to your house. That means the cops can get to your house or can get to can get to wherever you are if you're having a problem. It also means that, like, this is the thing I was thinking of when you said Detroit, like, with the whole street names not existing, like, it means the pizza delivery guy can get to your house, too, yeah. right? It's not just for, like, state-imposed services like the police. It's also for, like, things you want, like mm-hmm. Uber or food, right? Yeah. yeah. Or friends visiting. Yeah. So, like, we, again, loss aversion, we're, we're much more terrified of, of being injured or, or losing, even just losing money. We've, we've structured our whole society where it's very hard to have money stolen from you, actually. And, and that's it's not a physical thing we've done so much as a, as a social and technological thing. And the cost of this has, yeah, that, so, so I'm not even thinking the position that we haven't lost anything. We haven't, we, we've actually lost some of our humanity, I think. But the things we've gained are actually not something that I just want to turn my nose at because I like safety and security. And, and yet, I, I, I definitely, you know, I think, I think everyone can identify with that alienation of, of living in your, your, your isolated house or, or whatever and just the alienation of modern society you know it's, it's a i think that's a common topic in the rational sphere these days actually but as the devil's advocate i have to i have to say it's better than being like shanked by a you know a bandit on the highway yes yeah i feel like hobbes's leviathan comes into play here the the state of nature that before state imposition life was nasty brutish and short right like you said, any any highwayman could come by with a knife and take all your stuff, and like unless you're physically stronger, they just win. You know, you, you could have a recourse, but like the recourse is like this mob who doesn't work for free, and or I guess you could say like I don't know, I'm not sure historically what it actually was. I'm thinking like fantasy games, like the Fighters Guild. You could be like, hey, I'm being <laughs> <Yes>. harangued. <laughs> Can I hire you guys to come escort me to this place? I'm actually in this great boat where you're apparently taking i'm not sure what side if you're taking one if you're just laying out the seeing like a state position and you're taking the devil's advocate i'm really kind of in the middle i also am just in this weird position where i'm like eh here's where i am if it could be another way that's fine but since i'm here i'm not going to burn a lot of fuel thinking about it so i might take a side by the end of this i don't know okay well well maybe can maybe you guys can clarify something for me because this is a legitimate question i suppose do you guys ever talk about a dpd on this podcast i believe we've mentioned at least once okay so, so DPD, I believe, coined by Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, is this idea of, of a statement where one reading of the statement is true but trivial, and the other reading is profound but false. I, I have a, a feeling that maybe this whole seeing like a state thing has a little bit of a DPD at its core. And here's what I mean by that. The, the true but trivial reading of this material seems to be that when an organizing entity makes plans to improve a thing without considering the details of that thing, the efforts fail and or there are at least some terrible unforeseen side effects. True, but not earth-shaking to me. The profound but false reading is that all attempts at planning on an organizational level fail to achieve their aim and or have horrible unforeseen side effects. So clearly, clearly that's not true because clearly we, we make efforts to make things more legible and we reap enormous rewards in some scenarios. In other scenarios, we get Brasilia, the hellscape, and it's like, well, okay, then, then if that's the case, then what is your rubric for determining what is an appropriate domain for making something more legible, more scientific, more technocratic, more technological, and, and what is not? What should be left to the, the rural farmers to figure out? Can I make a horrific confession? Please. I think I found myself becoming more conservative over the past years 
and I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's a bummer that that's a horrific confession. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 it's partly horrific because I always viewed myself as like very liberal to the point of being in my college days, like a radical liberal, like burn it all down and start over, you know? God, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and people just like are resistant to change when they're older or because now I have assets that if people were to riot could get burned down. It's, it feels like I, th there's something within me that has changed, but I'm more to the point where due to the fact that you can't know all the details, uh, I believe another example in seeing like a state was some scientific committee or something came into this agricultural town and uh, saw that they were burning a portion of their crops every year. They said, why the hell are you doing this? And the people were like, because it's part of our religion. The God demands it, etc. Not that exact thing, but along those lines. Mm. And they said, well, stop doing that. That's stupid. And, and your religion is dumb. And now we will do things the more efficient way where you don't burn your crops. And it turns out that there was a very good reason for the burning of the crops. It helped replace some of the nitrogen in the soil. Uh, they just, they didn't know that. They didn't know the reason why it worked. They just knew that it worked. The scientists or whoever came to, to do this analysis just saw that the reason why that they gave was stupid, so they told them to stop and things kind of deteriorated and went to hell as the soil was stripped of its nutrients. Yeah. And since everything has such a high level of detail, which is ungraspable, I, I am more of the sort of Chesterton's fence point of view now where, well, it seems to be working, so let's not change it because there's more ways for it to go bad than there are for it to go good. Or at least let's fully understand what's happening before we decide to change it. Yeah, but whenever someone says they fully understand things, it always turns out that they don't. Well, like the first thing you, I thought of when you said they're burning crops, it's like, oh, they're 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 nurturing the soil. Yeah. I didn't think that. And then you said they're doing it for religious purposes. But then I just feel bad for like the eld scientists or the eld agriculturists who explain this to their co-farmers. Like, no, look, if you burn some and bury it, it actually helps the next year's crops. And they're like, fuck you, you're crazy. We're going to eat or sell this. And they're like, okay, fine. God will smite you if you don't do it. So <laughs> like they had to just fall back on convincing them through a bad means. So is this, is it Metis or Metis? I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm going to call, I'm going to say Metis. Okay. Um, the, 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 so that being, that is the mode of knowing that the, that the natives are using to, to solve their problem. And, and I guess the, the question, and, and maybe this is just, maybe I'm just like really missing something, but I'm like, you can't build a space telescope with, with Metis. No, you cannot. So clearly there's domains where Metis is appropriate and domains where Metis is not appropriate. And I really, I'm not be even being devil's advocate. I don't know that I could just like walk upon a situation and say like, oh, clearly there's deep ancestral knowledge here that I shouldn't mess with versus like, oh, it looks like these people don't know what they're doing. I'm going to help them using my scientific rationalistic worldview and that's why i say i feel like i am becoming more conservative because even five years ago i would have said they're being stupid make them not be stupid it's more efficient to not burn your foods whereas nowadays i'm like hey, you know maybe the human sacrifice helps something we'll just let them keep doing that <laughs> yeah that's interesting because a few years ago we had a conversation where you're talking about like your burn it down philosophy and even then i was like i feel like i could get hurt if people started throwing molotovs through windows and stuff and that was my only aversion was like just purely like i don't want to get killed i don't want my parents and friends to get killed maybe an example i'm not sure if this is a good one you guys can tell me and we can unpack it if it is maybe western culture coming not not like it happened like this way historically but kind of currently coming upon traditional chinese medicine or something you know one way to to approach it would be like well maybe they're onto something or another would be you know what there's no such thing as chi or 
meridians or whatever so they're all clearly idiots mm -hmm. or rather let's be more charitable they're all clearly wrong we should give them our medicine that works did you guys read the witch doctors without borders article no no oh god <laughs> okay uh very briefly there's certain parts in god i hate to say in africa because africa is a massive continent and varies greatly from one end to the other so there's a specific country in Africa that is undergoing civil war. Bad things are happening. Warlords and armed games are taking gangs are taking over villages, and there has been a counter meme, I guess, in the original sense of the word, that has sprung up that has helped people fight. Turns out that the the armed gangs aren't really all that good at fighting. They just have AKs that they spray at people. And the people don't want to get shot, so they submit to their will. But there's a lot of villagers, and if all of them just together stood up and, like, attacked at once and was like, okay, some of us will die, but no big deal, it's good, it's fine for the greater good, they could chase them out. But they don't because no one really wants to die. Uh, so there is this witch doctor that a few years ago came up with a bulletproofing potion. Where Oh, shit. Yeah. Jeez. You take this potion and you become bulletproof for a few hours. And the problem with the potion is that it's, you know, very expensive and complicated to make. It doesn't work if you have committed a range of sins in the past year. Uh, so if it ever fails, you can always say, well, that person obviously committed one of these sins that was not allowed. He just didn't want to tell anyone about it. And also, it's very costly in that it may involve human sacrifice. I'm not sure about that. So you don't want to do it too often. But people have been using it. And after they take the bulletproofing potion, everyone's like, let's fucking get these warlords. Yeah. And they chase them out. And so it's been spreading to more and more villages and has been working as an effective counter to the warlords taking over. And that's right. That is an example of, of Metis, uh, uh -huh. I believe, in that it is something that works, even though the given reason is incorrect. But if you had the true why, nobody would join in. So <laughs> they'd be like, I don't want to get shot. It's the false belief that makes it possible. So was this witch doctor selling this bulletproof potion, was this a game theorist who thought this is how we can take back our nation? Or was this like just some... It's uh, a dude that had a vision. And by well, dude, I mean like an elderly respected priest man. Okay, so it wasn't just some charlatan selling like anthrax uh, homeopathic pills. No. Or homeopathic vaccines or whatever. But even if it were, it would still have the positive outcome that it's had, which is the amazing thing. True, but I'm just wondering yeah. if this is the kind of... Uh, I I guess idly I'm curious about the motivations of this person because like, you know, selling bulletproof potions in an, in an area where people are being shot all the time sounds like a great way to make money. And then if you can just lampshade away or hand wave away all the people who get shot anyway, oh, they must have sinned or something. The potion's not perfect. Yeah. Like, that's that's interesting. I believe what I was commenting on was that it sometimes doesn't work to have the actual scientific knowledge. You can't yeah. always replace it. Like, yeah. so... Maybe this is an issue or a, an approach that's discussed in seeing like a state. But if you're understanding on some level, for example, why this uh, witch doctor is selling this bulletproof potion or why these people are burning their crops. And you're like, oh, you know what's better than burnt crops for fertilizer? Fertilizer. I'll bring you guys some fertilizer and trade you for all the food you're burning. And then that way, you know, everybody wins. You guys get more food and this food gets to get eaten. And then what helps stop warlords is like a powerful state with guns and a militia that can, can jump in and shoot them. I guess there seems to be other approaches than just letting the Metis do its thing. And I think Metis, another word, another definition that I heard was like practical or practical wisdom. Yeah, so it seems like there's there's other ways to deal with it as long as you're solving the same problem that they're trying to solve and you're aware that you're doing that. I guess the whole point of seeing like a state is that that's a lot easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think we have a very good example of it being easier said than done in our own personal lives because 
the rationalist community is quite aware of the powerful effects of religious community and ritual, and we've been trying to harness stuff like that for a while. We've got the meetups going, and we've got, like, some small community stuff, and there's even attempts to do rituals, like for the solstice ritual stuff, to help bind us together, but they don't ever quite seem to take off, or haven't yet anyway. I would like to do a podcast about building community at some point, whereas the churches seem to work very well, like, rural America, the church, I, I don't know if it was in the article that you read. No, it was an article you read, right? That How the church is a basically the economic unit of the, the uh, rural America. Right. And yeah. as people lose their faith, they're, I mean, among other reasons, the community fractures, the, the economic output of an area drastically reduces, life outcomes get much worse. And it doesn't seem like there's a way to replace that yet without the crazy belief in God memes tying it together. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Like, church works both as a fallback net that, yes, welfare tries to take the place, but welfare is so impersonal and doesn't really do it as well as people contributing their money to the church and then the church passing it out to people who are very poor or have sudden shocks... Uh, it has serves as a labor pool for the old people that can't afford to hire people. Or if someone's house burns down, everyone goes and helps them rebuild or something. It works as that social safety net that everybody needs and that is trying to be replaced by the state with welfare and other programs, and which just doesn't work as well. The problem might just be like the level of removal from the situation. Mm -hmm. you know, your churches are local on the ground, mm -hmm. and your state is this abstract thing in Washington, D.C. or wherever, right? That is, so, that is, I think, a large part of the argument of seeing like a state. Yeah, so... So the idea is like what smaller local governments i believe that is one of the thrusts of the book yes is that smaller local communities are better communities specifically not governments because the author is an anarchist right i don't know if he's an anarchist is he scott alexander said he was okay so I, I don't know if he was being hyperbolic or if he was saying yeah his he said something about how his anarchy sort of shown through in the book and that he wasn't at all like he would sort of just like hand wave away like all the amazing benefits of modernization like less dead babies yeah and uh be like yeah but look at how bad it was when we made everything on grids <laughs> which i mean it, it's a real i liked i didn't read seeing like a state but i read scott alexander's summary because it was shorter mm -hmm. and uh i haven't read the book either oh okay so but you probably read parts of, or you, you sent me that link of blog posts that was about it or something right so mm -hmm. you have more into it than i do anyway yeah alexander's essay was I thought it was good and comprehensive for what I was trying to get out of it. What's this book about? And it, he went about it in this really fun way where he talks about that level of abstraction from the top of the rulership down to the bottom makes it really hard to make anything straight because this this community over here uses this size basket and this one uses this size. Okay, well, here's this basket. We're going to use this. Okay, well, are we filling it? Uh, are we packing it down? Are we just pouring it? Are we pouring it from waist height or shoulder height? Like all these stupid little things do we have to eventually get down to every little minutia? I guess what I'm getting at is that yeah, it's one thing to say, all right, we're going to standardize this. And it's another thing to like implement that in a way that is at all successful or consistent. And and I, I'm, I hate to keep harping on the same thing, but that makes a lot of sense when you're talking about certain things. Like anything ecological seems to me uh, hazardous to meddle with. But you don't want every community to have their own like internet protocols or, or, or their own like traffic laws. Um, yeah, imagine traveling. Yeah, right. I mean, so, so, <laughs> we drive on the left side of the road in this state. <laughs> so, like, there are certain there are certain things that can clearly be made better by organizational hierarchical control and intervention. Just say intervention doesn't even have to be top down. And there are clearly things that are evolved 
I, I think one thing about churches is that they're an institution that's had some time to evolve to fill a particular role. And no matter how smart any person trying to create an institution from scratch is going to do less well than natural selection can do on solving a given problem. Maybe they create a thing, and two generations later, the thing they created has actually evolved into something really cool, but they're not going to get it right the first time. And that, that's all well and good, but you know, maybe we'd still be glad that they tried to create it the first time in this abstract hypothetical scenario I'm, I'm sketching. And I got to say, as a person living in a country with decent medicine and air conditioning and the internet, I'm really kind of glad that we went through that whole industrial revolution thing. Right. That, I mean, we, the destroying of all the metis and standardizing things really does create a lot of wealth. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, I mean, wealth might sound loaded to some people. It creates a lot of value. prosperity. Yeah. yeah, value for, yeah. like, almost everybody. You know, yeah. even the poorest in America, not, like, the bottom 10%, but the poor working class have, like, refrigerators. Like, being able to store food for more than a couple of days before it spoils is not something that we revel at how awesome it is and yet if we were checking down this week's food all weekend and it went bad by thursday like that'd be a whole different kind of i don't know we've talked a bit about before like whether people were happier in the past or versus now yeah. i do feel like there's more to be happy about now because you have time to actually catch your breath and enjoy things and you're not in this constant state of panic where you're chasing down food and then protecting it from bandits who didn't want to chase the food but you know you're easier to catch and rob so yeah I think I've, I almost think that people were happier in the past because they had more social connections. One of the major points of the second post that I talked about, um, the Meridian of Her Greatness is the name of this post, is that, yeah, the Industrial Revolution created tons of wealth. And the people who were uprooted from their communities due to enclosure and working in factories in London, their wages kept going up, but... They were removed from their friends and their family, and it tends to make people miserable to be this isolated. And I think that's a large part of the problem we have with the modern day, is the isolation and the alienation is what gives us this feeling of meaninglessness, that we are not important to anyone, and that's an issue. And that ties yeah. into your concern about the AI safety net making humanity less important in like some issues. I, I kind of wish Shelley was here, because I think she's sort of maybe got the right track where the main thing she values is other human connections. And if you like other people because you like to be around them, then their worth is not tied to their economic output anymore. You're valuable just because you're a human that has social ties with me. You were friends with me while I was unemployed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, I don't have an unemployed friends. My friends need to be able to, like, you know, quid pro quo on meals and stuff. So <laughs> come back when you have a job. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like we're sort of at an, I don't know, can, a, an impasse here. You had can, a couple things you wanted to touch, right? Yeah. Well, I, the, the main thing I wanted, I think maybe this could provide some, like, concrete examples to maybe go over. I, I have here the legibility game, which I've invented. And uh, I think we can go through it pretty quickly. The game is, that I, ask, I have four questions, four scenarios, and I say which of these interventions were examples of terrible overreach with devastating consequences and which were great things that it was really good they happened. Ooh, that sounds fun. The first one is actually a freebie. It's uh, the, the demolition of natural German forests and replacement of those trees with trees planted on a grid for logging purposes. Was this a good idea or a bad idea? I already know the answer to this one. So this one, I happen to know the answer because I read the article. Yeah, but right. like, if pretending I hadn't read the article, I might be of the mind 
Well, I guess you destroyed nature, which is sad, but it, like, is it good for us or is it good for the world? Was the, what's the question? I think that's a really interesting way of, of framing it. I mean, so in this case, it failed even on, on its own merits. And I, I knew you two guys had read this one already, but like it failed on its own merits because they even didn't end up making a more efficient logging forest, right? So, so they destroyed a forest and probably a lot of resources along with that, and they didn't even get what they were after. So it's just like production net. went down yeah, drastically, right? Just, because it didn't have the rest of the ecosystem that it needed to support those trees, right? Which so, is one of those things that when a few years ago, when if I would have read that proposal, I would have been like, "Hell yes! Yeah. What do we need all this chaos of the jungle for? Like bulldoze it, plant what we actually want in nice rows to make it easy to harvest, and this way we will be able to not have to disturb as many forests if we just have one hyper efficient grid forest of the tree we want." You didn't watch Princess Mononoke. Yeah, I did. <laughs> that doesn't and I work thought out it was well. an anime with you know <laughs> magic and druids and didn't really apply to real life. I thought it was based on historical events. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but what's funny is like you drive around, you see orchards. They're describing an orchard, yeah. right? So what's the difference between this and an orchard? I guess the difference is the type of tree. I mean, I'm sure there's some relevant difference that escapes me, obviously, because if I had done this it would have resulted in a disaster but it's like it, it doesn't seem obvious at all that this would have resulted in a disaster even though it did so. yeah and orchards are beautiful yeah so that was example one example two development of high yield dwarf wheat strains and distribution of those wheat strains in india and pakistan good thing or bad thing sounds great to me sounds really good to me too can you operationalize before you give us the answer distribute make it so that the people there grow those strains Make it so they grow them or uh, give them the opportunity to grow them? Give, it, give them an opportunity. Okay, because those are very different. So that's, okay. that's a good point. The opportunity sounds great. Okay. okay. Thinking ahead, maybe they don't know how to grow that wheat efficiently and so it fails. Or possibly it's one of the ones with the Terminator gene in it so they can't save seeds from year to year. But it sounds good on this face. Okay, yeah. I appreciate the, the fact that you expected a gotcha. But indeed, the use of these wheat strains credited to uh, Norman Burlog saved over a billion lives in the 20th century. So the reason I juxtapose those first two, by the way, is to say it's really not a good rule just to say let's not intervene in in unusual ways in ecological matters because then you've just lost a billion people if you refuse to intervene by creating a dwarf strain of wheat or whatever. Norman Borla, by the way, was credited with a medal from Congress. I think he's the single person on earth credited for saving the most lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was, yeah, on the range of a billion, which is insanely awesome. I'm still pissed at Greenpeace for how much they've opposed the golden rice thing. Goddamn. They, like, go through, they have, like, those propaganda films where they go through fields in hazmat suits and stuff. I, yeah. they strongly pushed <laughs> against it and made made golden rice, which was available free. They put all their research out there for free and was like, here, take it, put vitamin A in rice and grow this. It'll make so many less people blind. And no, it, it never took off because Greenpeace is bullshit. And it's just the same damn thing with vitamin A in it. Well, they're doing... They're, they bought the gotcha before they saw the results of the dwarf strain of, of wheat, right? Yeah. They were like, oh, no, we don't want to fuck with... The-. Well, actually, I take that back. I think it might have been less about not wanting to fuck with other people's ecology and more about, like... It was literally about the bad. GMO. Yeah, yeah, all right. GMO is evil. It'll turn you into Frankenstein. Yeah. It'll turn your frogs gay, right? It may, yeah. might. Who knows? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer my frogs gay. <laughs> They're very dapper. Oh, good. Then, then the chemtrails are exactly... Sorry. I was having this conversation with work friends, and I had to explain to them, like, they had never heard, like, the chemtrails turn my frogs gay. So I had to explain to them both what chemtrails are are said to be, and where, like, the frogs gay thing came from, and it turned out to be this really funny thing. I have a feeling you guys are going to know the answer to this one already, but uh, cats introduced to Australia to control the population of pest species. So 
you don't know this because we don't know each other that well. I'm I'm a super big cat person. Okay. So part of me is like, that sounds great. The yeah. more cats, the merrier. On the dance, or uh, but my dude, my even if other Australia impression. is overrun by cats, that's an upside. That's better than everything <laughs> else they've got there, right? It's fuzzy. Yeah. yeah. Um, my general vague knowledge of history of introducing new species is that it tends to go very poorly. So I'm going to bet that way. What do we got? Yeah, it, it turned out terribly. <laughs> I mean, the the cats uh, decimated and, and probably made extinct a number of small mammal species. <laughs> God damn um, it! And, and that's <laughs> they're murder machines. You know, that, I. I, I it's funny, I didn't quite realize that all three of these first ones were ecological, but it's like, yeah, you, we know from experience that, that introducing new species tends to be a horrible idea, but it, sometimes it can just sound so logical. And, and also, like, cats are a ridiculously effective predator, actually. That's one thing that people don't realize. Apparently, cat, cats kill, I'm going to, this is going to be wrong, and I'm going to be misleading all of your guests by saying the wrong number, but cats kill something like a billion birds a year. I heard the in, same in, number. Yeah. And it's like in the United States too, not even yes. in the world. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, if you don't pay attention to the details of what you're doing, things can go wrong. And then my last question is just kind of cute. The small group of wealthy aristocrats rebelled from their governing empire and attempted to found a new nation based on a completely untested theory of government just because it seemed appealing to them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm man, that say... sounds super appealing. <laughs> yeah. this, this sings my, my heart sings hearing that for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to go really well right up until they elect their 45th president. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I mean, uh, uh, depending, uh, people might disagree on whether this one turned out well or not, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I feel like it turned out okay for me personally. Didn't turn out so well for some of the more native populations. That's that's true. That's a great continent. point. I mean, it, it, speaking about le- legibility, I mean, uh, this government definitely did that legibility thing to a lot of people, and it didn't turn out well for them. So that's a that's a very fair statement. I can't think of another of a fifth example for the uh, legibility game. Yeah, basically, I was just trying to go back and forth and think of things and use Google, of course, to help me out. Just th- think of things that had worked out well. Think of things that had not worked. You know, I, w- I was thinking about putting uh, some specific dam on there. And that one just was really, I probably should have put it on actually, because the reason I left it off is I was like, this is too ambiguous. But it's, that's actually a great reason to include it because a dam creates value and, you know, provides electricity usually helps control like the floodplain and stabilizes things for for humans at least it helps with farmland and irrigation but then of course you have all kinds of negative effects on whatever river it is you're damming on whatever the ecosystem is in that area it's always a trade-off and i imagine people wouldn't be building dams if it weren't a trade-off that ended up tipping in favor of humans can we discuss briefly why things tend to tend toward more and more legibility and stronger governments I'm struck by the fact that Scott, not Scott Alexander, but the Scott who wrote Seeing Like a State, makes a fairly strong argument for smaller communities are better. They're more desirable to humans. It is what we feel better with and our lives are happier, for the most part, more psychologically fulfilling. And yet, that is not what has taken over the world. I think it's sort of an, I don't want to say an arms race or a race to the bottom or what, but a society that is better at making itself legible to the state will be better at taxing, better at conscripting troops, better at doing all the things that are valuable for warfare and for expansion. And so a happy society is one that is going to get taken over by societies that are better at turning people into units of production and units of warfare rather than happy humans. So Scott Alexander draws that same sort of implication that this does seem like a that modernization and, legi- and the push towards legi- legibility 
are like a great Malthusian trap that is just going to be a race to the bottom until it's this brutal competition that we, I don't think we've talked about at length anyway. Moloch. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, James C. Scott is the author of Seeing Like a State. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and this all culminates in Robin Hansen's M scenario of just brutal competition and complete barely subsistence above being a conscious being, um, which I agree that that's not a desirable outcome. So I mean, it may go all the way to uh, Bostrom's Disneyland without children, Yeah, where even consciousness is too expensive, and so the societies that strip consciousness from themselves will outcompete all the rest of us. Yeah, that's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I guess like the only uh, just to tie this back to to what i was saying at the beginning of about like loss aversion it seems to me that you can model a lot of these processes with loss aversion people people on mass making collective decisions essentially that are choosing like a certainty of having some value over uncertainty does that give me hope does it give me a little bit of hope i'm, I'm thinking about that because that implies that a society would not actually go right up to the point of literally self-destructing because then it's like, well, no, I, why would anyone on an individual basis make that choice if it doesn't gain them any more safety or security? I have to think that one through. So we need like a larger scale witch doctor to provide some alternate bulletproof potion. Yes. Oh, man. Well, hey, first, first one to think of how to do that and gets to cash in. So, I, I think that's possibly one of the problems with rationalism is we wouldn't be able to find that sort of thing because it would have to be an emotional, irrational sort of driven thing. I, You disagree. Well, like, to say that we couldn't... Let me try and think this through. If it's to be found, there are better and right ways to go about finding it and better, better and worse ways to, like, go around implementing it. And so those will all be found rationally, not by, like, whatever, throwing die or praying or something, right? So, so here's a question. Do you think a society full of rationalists highly educated knows all the game theory stuff would be able to overthrow a warlord without the bulletproof potion just saying like yeah we know some of us are going to die let's do it anyway my initial answer is that in principle the rationalist will be the master of the laws of science and can just make guns and shoot the warlords back right <laughs> or make better guns or make bulletproof assuming structures you don't have uh assuming you don't have access to the that sort of technology all you've got is the the social capital and the ability to talk to everyone else in the tribe. God, I don't know. I'm sure there's some way to make this super doable in that whatever betting markets or prediction markets on who lives and dies or somebody doing something that, you know, incentivizes individuals even though they're going to die. Because part of, if you could call this a weakness, which I guess in this particular instance it is, there's a strong reluctance among at least the rationalists I know to die. Yes. And so... Um, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in the front lines to take to you know tank bullets so that my friends can tackle the the warlords, but I'd want somebody to. I'd like to be part of that charge. I don't want to be in the front line. Yeah. So, but again, I would like to think. Well, I mean that's not fair. I was gonna say I'd like to think that we could just make shields, but obviously someone tried that. You know, it doesn't take a practiced Bayesian rationalist to think of like let's put something between me and the bullets, right? <laughs> um, other than other people. Well, you can all just agree that anybody who turns tail and runs, you're all gonna shoot them in the back as they run which is a very effective strategy for getting infantry to charge actually so uh it's not it's not very happy but uh but if you had the guns to shoot them in the back you have the guns to shoot the warlords and that was one of the prerequisites well, for not like winning the stab them you stab might right, just have enough. like one or two guys stand in the back with guns to shoot the people that run away <laughs> i would like to think that we would rush those assholes and take their guns and shoot the warlords with yeah. them <laughs> I, I hate to keep beating on that point but that just seems mean it would have to be the elderly because if someone could be charging the warlords they should be in the front lines but like the old guy in the wheelchair who can't charge, we'll give him 
the gun to shoot the people that turn around and run. But him and his wheelchair make a great meat shield for you charging the <laughs> for charging the warlords, right? Just push him in front of you. <laughs> some that's some Rick and Morty shit right there. <laughs> I mean, so this is part of my issue with like I don't know. There's like the classical economics version of. Uh, I'm trying to think of a decent example. Someone's going to point out how it's really stupid for X, Y, and Z reasons, but. Classical economics are things like the, the the model that $110 is better than $100, so I'll offer you $100 now or $110 in two months, and, you know, some number of people will take the $100 now, and it's like, oh, well, they're just irrational. So, you know, my model's right, they're just stupid. But that doesn't seem to take into account that, like, well, I could really use $100 right now, and I'll, I'll have a couple more paychecks in a couple months, so the extra $10 will make very little difference to me or something. There are considerations beyond, like, the easy math. And so I would like to think, so like that's sort of like the example of let's build cities on grids and we'll put all the businesses on this side and all the houses on this side and it'll be perfect because everything's on straight roads and, you know, intersections and whatever. So that doesn't seem to take into account the factors that don't seem unquantifiable to me, but just seem harder to put, I guess maybe, maybe quantifiable is not the right word because they are hard to quantify, but they're not hard to consider. Like factors that people like living near businesses, mm-hmm. like that's the kind of that's that's just a failure of consideration, like of empiricism. It's really cool, like you said, being able to walk down the street and go to your grocery, and not having to take a cab three miles into town and then take the cab three miles back, and you've now paid for groceries and sixty mu- sixty bucks worth of travel, right? So, it seems like there's a way to do this right. It's just hard. Is yeah. that something that uh, James Scott touches on in the book, or as far as I know, no. Yeah, this was something that I was thinking about a lot while doing all, all this reading was surely there's a way to do this right and when you're reading all these examples of states doing terrible things and making terrible mistakes you're like well well, this was just stupid I mean this isn't complicated they just did it stupidly and I think the point of the book maybe is look the state is incentivized to do it in this particular way that ends up being stupid over and over again yes you could do it correctly if you had like a giant bag of money and and a group of people who were like committed to the idea of like hey let's actually create a society that people will want to live in but that scenario has actually never happened it's it's usually the state wants to control and make legible its population and that's not conducive actually to flourishing i think that's where my conservatism comes from because i used to be very much of the opinion well it's just been done stupidly let's do it not stupidly and let's change things and make them better, just not in a dumb way. And now uh, I seem to be trending more towards it's impossible to do it the not stupid way because reality is a lot more complicated than everyone seems to think as shown by the entire history of human intervention almost always going wrong. So let's just stop trying to intervene. I would like to say it's prohibitively difficult and not impossible to do it the right way. Just the idea of let's make them grow these crops because they grow great over here. That's not a mistake we'd make today. We would test it under realistic conditions over there before we just usurped their food supply and said, you guys are going to grow this now because this grows a lot better and it'll be better for everyone over there. We're going to make sure it actually is first. So like the virtue of empiricism and testing wasn't a theme that I saw in the review of seeing like a state. That's that's relatively new. And I like to think that makes us a lot better at doing this right. Okay. So that we can do it right eventually if we do it wrong enough and learn enough. Or at least the mistakes will be less catastrophic maybe. I would like to think that we wouldn't make something on the order of the Soviet farming practices again, right? I don't think that we're stupid enough to try something that bad. But maybe I'm wrong. I do get, I am in this weird situation where I sound optimistic, and I sometimes feel that way. But yeah. Was it the Sam Zidot blogger that made the point? It, it's actually very optimistic to say that all of the horrors of the 20th century were due to malicious intent. 
And the pessimistic interpretation is that all the horrors of the 20th century were people trying their best to solve problems and the horrors being the fair outcome of their best efforts. Yeah. Their best efforts sucked. Their best efforts sucked, and we've learned more since then. And I think there's... I, I'm, I'm between the two poles, I think. We've, we have learned more since then. We're much better at a lot of things. We're only going to continue getting better unless, you know, something terrible happens. Well, and a lot of the people calling the shots here were not, like, people that you'd think of as, like, the epitome of rationality, right? I think it was... Some of them were really doing their best with the, with the tools and thoughts that they had at the time. And some of them weren't. I think it was Mao... I feel like I, I read somewhere, and I can't remember if it was Mao or not, I will try and find out who it was, had like this bullshit thing where they like, they wanted the softest bed imaginable. They wanted it exactly like a thousand feet above sea or a thousand meters above sea level. And it turns out the softest down comes from the chin of a sparrow. So like they ended up just destroying the sparrow population, ripping all their chin, their chin feathers out to make mattresses for this person. Jesus. So like that, that's not the person that is going to also be like the best at implementing their new statewide infrastructure, right? I don't. So, I think those two things are orthogonal. Let, let <laughs> Maybe me, you can be the best and want chin down mattresses. Let me let me rephrase that. I I feel like that is not indicative of an all around rationally encompassed mind, right? Um, maybe like, his terminal value is ultimate <laughs> sleeping comfort because he slept so well he could make all the best decisions. Right. Okay, um, and, and didn't it cause a famine because the sparrows were like spreading seeds and probably. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I, I think I heard part of this story. So it resulted in a famine. A famine, yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. So clearly, not think, not seeing all the implications of these stupid desires. I guess what I'm getting at, like, well, then uh, I, I mean, got but these. But that's the conservative slash Chesterton Spence position that you can never see all of the implications, and so things will always go horribly wrong. Well, but they they just charged through Chesterton Spence without looking at it first, because they were like, "Fuck these birds! They're not doing anything. Let's <laughs> let's use their chin feathers for beds." So like, they well, every now and then we say, "Fuck mosquitoes! They aren't doing anything except malaria. Let's kill them all." I feel like we're pretty sure about that. I I agree, <laughs> and I'm on board with killing all mosquitoes, but if the sparrow story is any indication... But we could watch sparrows and watch them do stuff, and we're, we also watch mosquitoes and watch them do stuff, and they don't do anything good, as far as I know. That's what I'm they not, thought about the sparrows. That's not. I don't know if anyone actually did that investigation into the sparrows. Oh, well. And it seems to me that you could wipe out mosquitoes, and then if everything goes to shit immediately, then you just release bunch of mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, don't, you can't release them once they've been wiped out. Well, so you have some in boxes somewhere i presume <laughs> someone awesome. someone's job is to have the mosquito box after the mosquito apocalypse put a big oh. m on it so they know it's full of mosquitoes <laughs> yeah. and the mosquitoes are trying to convince you to open the box yeah. and someone has to feed them obviously so you gotta stick your arm in there you know only female mosquitoes suck blood i think i did yeah male mosquitoes eat pollen really yeah oh so there probably is a huge downside to killing them all well, uh, other things probably do whatever the male mosquitoes do. I'm assuming they fill a niche, though. That's the, actually that's that's actually like that put I mean, me way off the fence. A yeah. niche, but I don't I don't really care about the living in my intestines and sucking my blood niche. Well, I do care about the pollinizing niche, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, I should have I guess been clearer on that. I care about the niches that are good for things yeah. and not good just for the thing that's eating my intestines or whatever, yeah. right? So. The larvae also provide a food source for fish, but my understanding is that they've calculated it, and even if those larvae weren't there, the fish, fish would be fine. And Probably some other insect would increase in population to yeah. make up the difference. And even if, yeah, so even if the solution was to, like, throw some fish food in all the ponds of, <laughs> of, Af or of the sub-Saharan Africa where malaria is rampant for five years until the other insects had a chance to flourish there, that sounds like a solvable problem. That's like... I think that's... 
a lot harder than you're making it out to be. <laughs> but it, throwing I mean, some fish food into every single waterway in Africa every day is not every waterway. Uh, okay, Just some of them of you're them. okay with the fish dying out in. I didn't think this through, but <laughs> we'll, we'll I'm willing to die on this hill. So <laughs> right. you could you could then channel all the efforts that are going like you know for malaria vaccines and bed nets and stuff, and just put mm. that towards fish food for the next couple of years. Even if the fish, so like even if you keep the fish population from dropping below a certain critical point, so you would you'd just have to enough feeding them. Or you could figure out what insects were going to fill that niche anyway, and just throw a bunch of their larvae in the waters one year, and then they would explode the population and probably cause some huge mess. I need to think this through. I need, no. I need a pen and paper. Well, look, look. <laughs> if we wipe out mosquitoes, it would give me personally infinity utility. And so um, there's really, like, no matter what else happens after that, it's a positive outcome. Right. Because you can't beat infinity. Right. Because I'm a utility monster, obviously. And, and I mean that I just solved the problem for everyone. You're welcome. Thanks. We may have to kill Matt. Well. That would be literally the worst thing we could do. Yeah. Then you couldn't get infinity <laughs> utility. I, I believe that it says somewhere in Genesis, thou shalt not suffer a utility monster to live. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was a mistranslation. It translated to witch, right? So, like, yeah. yeah so the, the, they the, meant the, utility monster, I think you're but right, they didn't yeah. have the concept back then. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, God was trying. I think this is a f- interesting topic to talk about because I don't have any sort of answers or conclusions. I'm just confused and vaguely disheartened by how not awesome we are at optimizing everything i guess i have two intuitions slash takeaways one is that we're getting better at optimization mm-hmm. it doesn't happen overnight and if there were some huge missteps well that sucks but then you get back on course and you keep going for the right ways of doing things i'm not saying like individual nation states get to make gigantic mistakes i'm like oh you know what we'll try again th- this way instead like history gets us gets humanity back on course not you know individuals who kept fucking things up but the other thing is that I guess I would need a good argument that either A, we wouldn't return to some grotesque Hobbesian state of nature if we if we got rid of high modernization slash legibility enforcement, or if we if you're okay with, you know, just biting the bullet and say, yeah, that we would turn back into that, you'll have to explain why that's better than what we're at now, right? And the problem with small communities, tight knit communities, is that they will never be able to create space shuttles and colonize other planets because you just don't have enough resources in a small community to do that. Right. And there was also one other thing that I meant to hit on, which was, at least in the Slate Star Codex summary, there wasn't really a discussion of the impact on non-humans during all of this business. And that seems at least worth mentioning, that wipe out a jungle to make a nicely orchard-styled tree-farming field for lumber production. A, it doesn't work out for lumber production, but E, or B, for those of you keeping count at home, it also doesn't work out well for all the wildlife you killed to make way for that tree farm. I mean, that's at least some people care about that sort of thing. It's at least worth mentioning. So I certainly think that's a cost worth considering. I don't know. Like, that's sort of my thing is it's not worth not doing it. We were sure it was going to work, but we had to be really damn sure. So are we moving on? Let's move on because it has been a little bit over an hour. And now, as promised, last episode's discussion of the story Utopia Lowell. If you want to read it, now is your last chance to skip or pause. All right, so I was sad to find out that the AI had been constri- constrained from expanding beyond the solar system. I, I was more bummed that like the AI manipulated people on purpose, but I also found that kind of awesome because then the guy's like, yeah, I totally get that you're manipulating me, and I'm fine with it, which is the sign of a great manipulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for me, I was going to say, and nah, I guess whatever goes on the air, then people know I'm a wimp. I cried for like a minute. Like I, had to, like, I couldn't keep reading uh-huh. when uh, Keat, was that the minute? Kip? Oh, Kit? Kit? Wasn't it Kit? Or Kit? Kit. Whatever, whatever the, the tour guide. Yeah. Realized that, like, oh, you're going to send them off to the stars. 
do you want to just go be birds again? <laughs> like, that was like, oh, my God. That was the saddest thing I've ever heard. Aww. So, like, that was, I don't know. I'm not sure if that was written to pack that punch or if it just hit me hard for some reason. It wasn't even the fact that it was birds. It was just like, you know, do you want to just throw this away and we can go keep having fun again? Yeah. Like, the idea that like, I'm going to lose you forever. Like, let's not do that. That was super intense. Dude, that is awesome. If you get a chance, uh, I would totally go and comment on the story and say that or track down the author and like send them an email because as an author the few times i've been told i made someone cry have been some of the happiest moments in my professional <laughs> career like, sadist <laughs> yes that is what you want as an author that you have emotionally touched someone that deeply and, All right, and know. very rarely i do people ever let you know that sort of thing even when it does happen cool yeah let him know you will make his fucking week unless he's had like just an enormous week <laughs> yeah you bet i'll find it why were you sad that uh, the AI was prevented from leaving the solar system? Well, like, it's the best tool humans have, and then they're like, well, no, you can't use this tool out, outside of the special zone. You have to go be weak and primitive out there. I think I think I kind of liked that, because it seems to address my major concern, that it allows the humans to have a place where they will be safe and protected forever in the solar system, but it also gives them a place where they can go out and still have risk and explore and be the deciders and the important people. Even though that's risky out there, they have taken, they have made the decision to take that risk and, and put their lives and on the line. And condemn their children to it. You know, I mean, yeah, but what can you do, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> were you upset because... What can you do? Yeah, sometimes... I'll tell you what you can do. <laughs> you can not do what they, the author did. <laughs> you can ship your children back to the solar system until they turn 18 and can make their own decisions. Even in the archipelago created by Scott Alexander, children have the option to leave yeah. their communities. Yeah, but they, I mean, but they were, they didn't have the option to be not born into the community. Yeah. So the children, I assume, once they get to other solar systems, well, no... I mean, eventually they'd have the technology to get back to Seoul, but not for a while. Not for a number of generations, probably. Were you were you upset because of the lost potential of having an AI that was uh, constrained that way? Or were you sad from the perspective of the AI who wanted to help beyond this this narrow area, but then couldn't? Uh, I guess not from... The, I'm not sad for, like, the AI feeling sad. Yeah. I'm sorry for the eye feeling sad. <laughs> I think I've got a problem with like my empathy's turned up too high. I don't but it's not like I'm not sure it's not it where I can't turn it down. Yeah, I don't think yeah. the AI did feel sad because it was programmed to be happy with the things the way they were. Then why would it try program- and do <laughs> better? Maybe it wasn't sentient. Uh, I got the impression that it was. It talked as though it was, but that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It means more than nothing. Okay, <laughs> more than nothing. I, yes. I think the AI was happy to have keep the solar system a safe, happy, wonderful place and to allow humans to have their danger zone too if they want it. That's true. That's typical minding it too. Mm-hmm. Like it could yeah. be happy with these weird constraints and it could be as happy as it could possibly be. All right, fair enough. Yeah. We have listener feedback. Uh, first thing I want to do is uh, a new segment that we shall do every week. Uh, whenever we have a Patreon supporter supporting at $4 or more, I think it was, uh, we will read one of their names and say a special thank you to them on an episode. So this week we have... Wukash Stefaniak? I, I should I should ask my parents because this looks like a uh, Eastern European name. Po- quite possibly Polish. It has the L with the line through it and the SZ for the sh sound. So Wukash uh, Stefaniak is uh, a Patreon supporter and actually supporting at the level where uh, he gets to choose either chat with one of us for an hour or choose a topic for us to talk about on one of these episodes. So thank you very much for your support. 
going on to actual questions. Zeke Aaron, when we had Patrick on, Patrick mentioned superluminal faster-than-light communications. And Zeke Aaron writes, regarding superluminal communication, I'm going to need a source. Hmm. Quantum entanglement is a commonly used science fiction trope, but the real science behind it is pretty unusable even for transmitting a single bit. It is entirely hypothetical until I read contradictory evidence. And I didn't want to contradict Patrick on the air because it had been at least 10 years since I had read anything about that. I thought, "Eh, maybe he knows more about it than me. But yes, also as far as I know, quantum entanglement, it only works for a few hundred bits out of every several million that they try it with. So not a very high rate. And depending on your interpretation of quantum mechanics it isn't really even all that useful for sending information like i don't from what i've read you can't really use it to communicate faster than light because you still need some traditional communication method telling people to check their bits now actually first off i happen to know it's uh zeke aran as in uh samus aran okay not aaron Okay. Just for whatever that's worth. Um, but See, yeah, that was my takeaway. Aaron too. And I feel like one of us pushed back a bit. I can't remember who it was. You know, said, are you sure that's not just quantum entanglement? And Patrick insisted that it was something new and cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was with you. I was like, well, it's been 10 years or some years since I read a popular science like Hawking physics book or something. So maybe there's some cool new thing that somehow didn't hit my news feeds. Did we ever ask him to send us stuff we did get a link and i'll post the link to it most recently they the headlines also said it was teleportation of uh managing to entangle photons which i i don't consider it teleportation although technically in a way it is but it's it's transforming matter that's already there well i mean teleportation of individual photons sounds like there's no way to tell photon a from photon b right so, so if you make photon a identical to photon b it's basically like you teleported it right well fo- yeah but on the other hand if i had a massive matter in outer space and it became identical to the table i have in my house i wouldn't necessarily say my table got teleported yeah i don't know see i thought even entanglement teleportation quote unquote only propagated at the speed of light but i uh, don't know what i'm talking about i'll have to ask my brother about this your brother knows more about this stuff. He's he's getting a PhD in physics. Fantastic. Is, yeah. So he should know he should be able to answer any of my questions is is my interpretation. And if not, he can maybe at least point us to a source. Yeah. Cool. Deadly Claymore. When we had our podcast talking about deafness and cochlear implants and whether parents should be uh, forced well, not forced, whether parents should put cochlear implants into their deaf children, and that some deaf parents have chosen not to. Dead Claymore writes Mostly deaf fan of the podcast here. I would consider it child abuse for a parent to actively or tacitly block their children from getting a cochlear implant. I'm assuming parents are responsible for their children. They do not own them. Based on that assumption, a parent cannot claim bodily autonomy for someone else. Their responsibility is to provide the objectively best possible outcome for their child. Which leads me to... Having never had full hearing and never been fully deaf, I've personally experienced a wide range along that spectrum. It is objectively better to have more senses than fewer. Yeah, I actually, I really appreciated that that perspective. And I'm also glad that we didn't, you know, the one person who wrote in that might have something. Well, I guess we're not going to get a lot of deaf people writing into the show. Probably not. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I appreciated that feedback. And I, I do like the, the point. Actually, I think it was, I think I saw Daniel Dennett articulate it this way, that we're, we're not like the owners of our kids, we're their stewards. It's not, well, it's mine, I can do whatever I want with it. It's like, no, it's your responsibility now that you have one to give it the best that you can. And that means, you know, being sensible to some degree at least, right? So, and not just about cochlear implants, but about things like vaccines 
I mean, there is something pedantically more senses is better. I don't know 100% if that's true. Like, if we could sense more the electromagnetic spectrum, we'd be blind. But that's probably not what they were getting at. So It's interesting. Have you ever heard of the um, North Paw bracelet? Or anklet, rather? Mm-mm. It's like an ankle bracelet, which is sort of awkward to wear because people think that you are in prison or that you're out of prison on parole or something. But uh, it vibrates against your skin in whichever direction is north. Ooh. Yeah, it is the coolest thing. I've heard it described as basically having a second, uh, well, a sixth sense now. And that eventually you start dreaming in with the sense where you just always know where north is. And it, it seemed like a really awesome ability. And I got one and it didn't quite work for me and part of the problem being that people did assume that i was out of you know on jail i had done something wrong and i was like i'm just not gonna wear this anymore because (laughs) i would love to try it if you still have it i don't anymore that's okay yeah so how did it work did it just constantly buzz north yeah and what there's i'm assuming there's weights on all four sides or something Uh, eight eight it has eight of those little cell phone vibrator motors and whichever one is pointing whichever one is closest to pointing north is vibrating I feel like all the time that get kind of annoying. Do you just get used to it? Yeah, and also if you uh, if you don't move for a while, it stops and only buzzes like once every two minutes or something, really briefly. Did you did it like become impossible for you to become lost? Did you just like always know where you were? A- again, I only wore it for about two oh, days because okay. going into the office and having people being like, "Ah, oh, I see what I was like." Oh man, I can't do this in accounting. If it has eight small things, it doesn't look like an ankle bracelet. An ankle bracelet looks like this big thing attached to a belt. Well, it's it has not... it has a large motor on the side and also a little, uh, you know, housing for the computer chip that oh, has the yeah. little sensing thing in it. And, and probably the battery. And well, Yeah, the battery. Yeah. Did, did I say housing for battery? You said computer chip that has the sensing thing in it, which also have that. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and the battery. And, okay. Yeah, that makes it look very bulky. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. I wonder how much they are because that's the kind of thing I'd be interested in trying. $200. I'm always, I'm always wearing jeans, so... Yeah. Just write Live Strong on it, and then they'll just assume go. that it's... A... Just paint it baseball or football team colors. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. I should maybe maybe get another one. But yeah, it's $200. That was what they cost a few years ago, or what they cost now? I believe it's what they still cost now. Oh, they 150 cost... if you do your own soldering, but uh, I would not recommend that unless you are very good at soldering. I'm not, so maybe we can go have these. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, Dead Claymore goes on to say, technical note... Cochlear implants, in order to be maximally effective, need to be installed as early as possible so the child's brain can develop the necessary neural pathways to accurately interpret the stimulus that's coming in. If I found out that my mother had the option of fixing my hearing and didn't, I would be quite pissed off. All that being said, being deaf isn't the end of the world. I sometimes joke that it's a superpower. For sure. And I don't think we came off as as anti-people with five senses, right? I hope we didn't come off as anti-deaf people either. Certainly. Yeah. A, that is interesting to know about it needing to be installed at childhood. I knew that there's some perk about it being installed. At, I thought it was something to do with like how your ear developed and healed, but apparently it's also brain wiring, mm-hmm. which also gives you the opportunity later on if you're like, you know what, I feel like I'm an adult now. I want this thing out. I want to try being deaf forever. Then you can do... St- I mean, then again, every able-hearing person has the ability to do that too, right? Yeah, we all have flags. number two pencils in here if we, need, oh. if we really wanted to. I guess, how, do you, how are you supposed to go about doing that? You're not, right? Yeah, the cochlear implants, from what I've heard, take quite a while. A lot of it is the brain wiring. When you first get them, all you hear is like weird buzzes and beeps and stuff. Hmm. And apparently there was a, probably either Radiolab or This American Life. Someone was talking to a reporter, one of the early cochlear implant adopters. And as they were talking to a reporter, they were like, that's an ambulance, isn't it? And the reporter was like, yes. And they're like, my brain finally made that wiring and I heard an ambulance for the first time. So it takes a while to for your brain to figure out what is happening to it. That's really interesting. And it, it had been like a few months at that point. 
I wonder what that'll be like if we ever get technology that gives us new senses. How that if it'll be faster or slower, or what that'll be like. It also has to be weird being a baby, right? Just randomly bombarded with sensory inputs that you have no idea what's happening. Mm-hmm. I sort of give babies like some slack now because like <laughs> when they're, they're they're constantly screaming and crying, but like everything that's happening to them is the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their entire life. Right. So like you know they they drop their thing out of their stroller and they, they lose their mind. It's like that's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And you're right, like it's got to be super intense, especially the first few days. I imagine going from like the soft hum of utero to police sirens yeah. and flashing lights must be quite the the stress inducer. Everything's cold all the time, yeah. Yeah. It's probably not good for our psychology. <laughs> oh, yeah. Being born. <laughs> I wanted to ask real quick. You said you are both a rationalist and a parent? Yeah. We also got an email from uh, Jason, who is a rationalist parent. Would you be interested in doing like a rationalist parenting episode at some point? Sure. That sounds great. Awesome. I will maybe do that. Uh, I bring that up because Jason wrote us an email, a number of things. One of them is about the rational parenting thing, and I'll put that off for later. But uh, when we were talking about the meaningfulness of the real physical world, Jason wrote, It's possible the current universe we're in is a simulation. Does that change anything? Does it make what we care about meaningless? What does it matter? I don't think I said, or if I did, I think I hopefully appended it by the end of the episode, that I don't think that life without contact with physical reality would be meaningless i'd feel like i'd be losing something and yes if i learned that we lived if we lived in the matrix and there was a real world out there i'd want to know what that was so like in that sense and i think anyone who wanted to know what the world is like would feel what i'm feeling when i say we're missing something we're missing what is really happening out there like i said i don't know if that's a compelling enough reason not to go into a simulation especially circumstances got dire or something like it was the only way not to die i'd be i'd be in there in a heartbeat even if it was super not super boring but even if it was you know not tile simulator but if it was middle earth right (laughs) i think this stuff wouldn't be meaningless because i still care about the people i care about but it would feel slightly less meaningful i would want to know what's out there do you have an opinion yeah i mean i always go to consciousness when i think about this type of thing and kind of the pseudo buddhist perspective of like i'm much more certain that consciousness exists than i am that i have a physical body and i'm sitting in a room so even if everything is a simulation, whatever is happening on the level of my awareness is quote-unquote real as far as I'm concerned, no matter what I learn about the outside world. And I'm just going to continue operating under the assumption that other people are real too, in which case they do have meaning, even if they're also a simulation. That's, that's kind of where I am. And yeah, it would be, if, if I find out that this is the Matrix, I'd be interested to know what's outside the Matrix. But uh, I, I wouldn't invalidate anything about my existence, I don't think. You have a child. I have three, yeah. You have three children. Would you still, would you feel that their existence is less meaningful if this was the Matrix? No, I mean, my only concern for them would probably be like, I want to ensure that they're able to thrive in whatever way they define that to be. I don't know. This is my home universe. Maybe they'll want to move to a different one. You'd want to stay in this one? I guess it depends on what the top level universe is like. I mean, if it's just completely abstract and incomprehensible to us then like an an ant doesn't need to be made human-sized an ant should be ant-sized you know there's an appropriate scope for an organism unless you're going to also like modify my brain in which case that's a completely different thought experiment jason also had some interesting things to say about psychedelics because he's taken them this email that he sent us was not actually text he sent us an audio file so i'm going to go ahead and throw up that audio file on our patreon feed in case anyone wants to hear that caveat ask jason first i will ask jason first yeah okay Here's a comment which feels prescient to me because it touched on what I was talking about today. Zeke Aran... No, okay, hold on. Samus' his last name is Aran? 
I always thought so. See, I played it back in the days before they had uh, audio in games, aside from beeps and boops. So I just said Aaron. In like the ones where they actually have voice actors, does it come out as a Ron? I haven't played them since. Do they talk now? Dude, never, I don't know. I assume I they know. talk in all video games now. God, we sound so old. <laughs> um, like at some point she goes, I'm Samus Aron. Take this, alien. I I assume that's what she says before she fires each bullet. Probably. Or energy projectile. Now that I'm put on the spot, I don't know how it's pronounced. Although I do think that Zeke told me that that's how he pronounces Aron. Okay. But whether or not Samus pronounced it that way, the world may never know. Okay. Or the world knows and we just don't. So, We're g- I'm going to go with Aran since that either, sounds better. Either way. Okay. Zeke Aran says, uh, when we were talking about, uh, again, we were talking about the transhumanist fiction, and we were talking about the culture and how humans don't matter in that society. The AIs do everything of import in that universe. Uh, Zeke Aran says, Inyar seems to have Luddite feelings regarding the culture and also a misunderstanding of what it means to live in it. Being in the culture means you are perfectly free from all obligations, duties, and survival. He has a little more to say, which I will get to, but I think being completely free from all duties and obligations is kind of horrific because going back to what we were saying about how what we really care about is other humans and our relationships with them and our social net, those things come with obligations and duties to other people. If you are completely free of obligations and duties, then you don't really have any sort of social network or social ties. So if you're completely free from them, you'd be completely alone. I see where you're going with that, but I can challenge that by saying that, like, I didn't help you move because I was obligated to. Mm -hmm. I did it because we're friends, but it's not like it was an obligation or a duty, right? right? Like, it's not the duty of all your friends to help you move. Otherwise, you'd have had an army of people helping you, right? (laughs) right? So... Like, it's just the people who are available and want to and can or whatever. So I think being free of duty and obligation doesn't mean that your communications break down. I feel like it means that you're not doing anything that you don't want to do. So then that way, when somebody helps you, you know, it's because they actually want to and not because they feel like they're fulfilling some obligation. I think there's sort of a sense of duty and obligation to that, though. Like, there are some obligations that come with being a father or a son, right? Well, a father, obviously, but also a son. There is reciprocal part of that. Yeah, I've never read any culture novels, but, like, how would the culture enforce not having obligations on a person? Like, like well, if, if you take on an obligation, I'm, I'm asking, I haven't read the novel, I, I, I'm, I'm confused, honestly. So I believe you just don't have to fulfill yeah. it. Okay. Well, so, I, I haven't read them either. So, like, I want someone to help me rebuild my bathroom. I give somebody $300, and they sell me by tomorrow, and they don't come. How do they just get away with it in culture? Like that doesn't sound utopic. That doesn't sound utopic. Do robots come and do it instead? Um, and then I just wasted the money, or do I just pay robots because they don't they don't flake on business deals or what? Or do you not need bathrooms? Because that all that also solves the problem. I just think that obligations and duties to other people are a meaningful and important part of relationships. There are some things you expect from your friends and your partners. Yeah, like like the the whole signaling thing. Like you you establish a relation. I mean, this is like our monkey wiring is like. Oh, you have shown me that you care by doing something that cost you something. And that may be costing you time, energy, opportunities, whatever. But if nothing you do ever costs you anything for me, then I never have a credible signal that you actually care about me. Hmm. That's, the, that's the cynical way of phrasing it, I guess. But just like you were saying, yeah, if in this sort of idealized post-scarcity world, it's kind of hard to have um, meaningful personal connections. I see what you're saying. I feel like he successfully channeled Robin Hansen in that analysis. <laughs> and I feel like there's actually something to that. And don't you just have a duty to your fellow citizens to not shit in public or make society worse in some way? To defend your friends? 
and or defend the right of free speech or public assembly or whatever it is yeah i don't i haven't read the culture the culture series either so i can only assume that they have some way of getting around these problems because like in a situation well, where the there was getting around it is that humans don't matter you can't do anything that can fuck up the world can you do anything that fuck up one person nope then not how, without their consent then how can you literally do anything you if you want to you could like if there's a table and you want to clean it you can clean the table but you don't have to it'll clean itself if you leave it alone so yeah i mean it, it sounds kind of horrible and dystopian from from my understanding of it is like there's like these super ai overminds that are literally just basically bouncing humans around like billiard balls and the humans of course think they have agency but that's just because the machines are that much smarter than them like that's that's a dystopia to my mind yeah that sounds interesting okay so maybe i'll have to have a conversation with zeke about this at length and he can steel man the the utopia of the culture series because part of that sounds great in that like you mean i don't have to clean my bathroom anymore you know cool but if it's like that with literally everything, then yeah, what are we even doing? I don't know. I, what I think what would be a little better would be like we're kind of doing whatever we want. There's a better safety net in that like texting while crossing the street one time doesn't obliterate you from the universe forever, but you could still do dangerous stuff. But if something crazy happened and it didn't work out, then you're like you're immediately saved, or you know whether you're backed up every morning before you go to bed, or mm-hmm. uh, like you can you can literally do anything and it will not obliterate you. You're you're always fine unless you specifically take off those safeties. Hmm. Charles Strauss explored that once in uh, Acceleranda, which was really great. They had basically functional immortality, and so children started running around with like uh, swords and machine guns and stuff when they're playing out on the playground, and would liter- cho- literally chop each other up and shoot each other full of holes. And it didn't matter because they turn off the pain receptors, and then the machines rebuild their body, and they're like, "Yay, this is fun!" And it's kind of bloody and horrific. And on the other hand, you're like. Well, shit, if I could swing around a lightsaber on the playground and it wouldn't kill anyone, I would. Yeah, if it didn't hurt and no one died, that does sound kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people play paintball now, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. a simulated version of that, so. Yeah. yeah. It would be like paintball, except with real guns, and when you die afterwards, they, at the end of the round, resurrect you. Well, so we start... also play Call of Duty, which is like right. another abstraction of that, right? <laughs> so feels like the same thing. And Call of Duty does isn't very meaningful. People who go to the military will still play Call of Duty for fun, but they don't derive the meaning, meaning from Call of Duty that they do from being in the military well that's because they aren't real people so i feel like as long as you're interacting with real, in in call of duty oh, oh not that okay. military <laughs> personnel aren't real people I, I, those aren't people no no one listening to this saw this but as soon as he said those aren't real people i gave steven the look as in oh <laughs> yeah so i, I didn't clarify because i felt like i misspoke i clarified because inyash <laughs> gave me a look that said he felt like i misspoke um yeah you can gun down everybody in call of duty nothing happens and right. the world's no different for it your stats in the game change but your stats in the game of But what Earth, if all of life was like that? You could that, gun down everyone and it wouldn't matter because nothing changes except maybe a few stats of how many people you gun down on the playground. Yeah, how does that stop the rogue sociopath in culture? In culture, uh, you can't like harm people without their permission. It's like, what if you are swinging a lightsaber and you're fine swinging it until you hit somebody and then it just stops working or what? Yeah. Is this a whole world of simulation or just... No, no, no. It's, it's not a simulation. It's a physical world. Just the culture uh, minds are that powerful. Damn. Okay. I don't know what to add to that. <laughs> okay. Zeke uh, goes ahead and says, because he anticipated my uh, objection here, saying, regarding meaning and service, people in the culture raise children and collaborate on projects, which may include celebrations, art, games, regular socialization. Think of the life of a 20 to 30-something-year-old offspring of a billionaire. What do they do? Do they weep in their bedroom about how meaningless life is now that they can hire a servant to do literally everything for them? Or do they party, socialize, work on projects, and self-improve? And 
you know, that's that's the counterpoint to that. Like in Star Trek, no one has to work, but a lot of people do anyway for the fun of it. Well, so two questions about that. Well, I guess one caveat and one question. One caveat is that it depends on the billionaire 20 year old but you know a lot of them are just laying around drinking because like they can't contribute i don't know if a lot of them there aren't a, there isn't a large sample size but i do know that depression rates are kind of high in those populations which i guess take that for what it is uh zeke said that they collaborate on projects they make games and art would that stuff not exist if people didn't build it because then you're still creating things of value that wouldn't exist otherwise and that is an outlet to make you productive yeah, it would still exist. Okay, so speaking as a temporary billionaire, <laughs> I, I have been uh, unemployed for a number of months now, and I have a small amount of passive income, and I live extremely cheap, plus I got uh, workers' uh, unemployment insurance. What is it called? Unemployment. Unemployment. And I'm unemployment right now. So basically, I have the entire day free and have had for several months now to do whatever I want. And uh, it's been pretty great. I finished my novel. I am now looking for an agent. I am working on short stories. I'm doing other things that I enjoy with my life. And quite honestly, I can see this going on forever. I'm like, this is so much better than having to get up at 6 a.m. every day, slog into work to do meaningless accounting and number juggling for eight hours and then come home. And yeah, I don't have nearly as much money to spend, but I'm using my time with what I want to use it on. And I get to socialize with people more often. I get to see you guys. I get to see other people. It's it's kind of great. So I'm sad that I'm only a temporary billionaire and I'll have to rejoin the workforce in a couple months here. <laughs> but uh, it's not something to sneeze at. Well, so you're in that situation that, that Zeke's describing, yeah. but you're you're creating things that wouldn't exist otherwise. And that gives you, like, if you were, I don't know, just making the same five centimeter cube of wood over and over you'd probably get super bored well and there's machines that can do it better than you can so like if i was in this position 10 years ago i would have been miserable i used to be not very good with not having outside goals to push me i was in this situation a few months ago and i was miserable yeah exactly (laughs) a lot of people who are unemployed are miserable because you need some kind of goals and it's nice that i have found my own goals where i uh i now have the podcast that i work on and i have the the novel that i'm writing and other things i'm pursuing but It's hard to find that sort of self-directed goal. Matt, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think people need something to struggle against. And most people can't generate their own thing to struggle against because it feels artificial. Um, But something like a novel is perfect, actually, because from my perspective as someone who likes to write fiction, it sometimes feels like a story idea is exogenous to you and it comes in and you have to write it um, and it puts demands on you. Uh, So that's that's a great example of something that does work uh, as a as a self-motivating goal, I think, or potentially can. But yeah, I think just goals, I, I like the word struggle because of the connotations that, that, that like humans do to find themselves by struggle to some degree. We find meaning in struggle. I'm going to Burning Man for the first time this year, and I get the feeling life would might be a lot like Burning Man because there's nothing necessarily to do at Burning Man. You just show up and be there for seven days, but people find their own projects and art installations and other things to do and service to other people a lot a lot big part of it is like the service and gift to other people that are there i was really into that when i was looking into it once for about 10 minutes until i saw that it cost a bunch of money now when it used to be free Did it or at least be free? or at least super super cheap okay How, what i guess it's are... it's about 500 dollars for a ticket it's not too bad but no it's not prohibited well i guess yeah. I mean, I guess it depends That's, on how much money you got. Yeah, and like if you can afford not to work for however many days Burning Man lasts or whatever. But yeah, how long does days. it go? It's seven days. And then there's also you have to bring in everything that you need to live on. So it's if it's you're going for the first time, like I will be, it's actually a fair outlay in supplies. Can't you barter for that? Uh, no, it's not a barter economy. It is you are allowed to gift people things. Can't you 
get gifted those things in exchange for other gifts? I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess you could, but self-reliance is apparently a, a large tenant of the thing. Oh. So you're supposed to be fairly self-reliant when you come in. Oh, that's weird. I feel like if I was going to do self-reliant week, I would just pack a big backpack and go into the mountains for a week and yeah. then probably die because I'm not good at that. But I would, I would practice <laughs> the, with an overnight first, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can you can do that too. It just burning man where everyone is doing nothing except trying to survive and spend seven days and do as much cool shit together as they can in that time and as much lsd as they can in that time supposedly yeah i probably will not because i wouldn't want my first trip to be there that sounds like it would be taxing yeah you wouldn't know when you came down yeah. right everything's still so weird <laughs> yeah. there's a glowing skeleton driving towards me yeah i don't know culture probably not as horrific as one thinks but i can see a vast amount of ennui and meaninglessness in that society and i don't think the majority of humans would get through their 20s. But you would do okay right now. now. Yeah. In my 20s, I would have killed myself. Well, the idea is maybe you get psychologically well-adjusted people, like better than me, better than you 10 years ago, mm. to live in these, or that exist in this area, right? So, I don't know. Maybe I should read these books. I'm sure it's a, quite an undertaking. Sailor Vulcan says, You guys missed the obvious solution to the whole personal autonomy versus decision-making capability problem. Difficulty level of decisions should scale with intelligence. The transhuman gods wouldn't make all the easy non-god decisions because that would be boring for them. As long as people aren't dying or suffering terribly for their mistakes, the transhuman gods wouldn't need to intervene. Well, I feel like suffering terribly needs to be operationalized, right? Because is, well, if you don't get this vaccine, it won't kill you, but you could develop a cough that will inhibit your fitness for the rest of your life. Like, is that terribly enough to have the, the transhuman gods step in and be like, you're getting this vaccine? Or is it enough for them to like just solve the problem before it even reaches you, like by putting it in your food or something? I see what they're saying, but that also, I guess, part of the thing that we struggled with in that episode was how do we scale ourselves when we don't know what we're getting into? We had to be kind of just taking their word for it, right? Yeah. And unless they just didn't want to weigh in and they let people just experiment on it? I don't know. The more constraints you put on it, the harder it gets. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on autonomy versus decision making i mean i think the the way the the comment was posed that i i don't think that a godlike ai would become bored by small decisions because i think that like the scope and depth and breadth of the of what it could do would just expand and it could solve all the problems all the time so i don't i don't think that's necessarily the thing but th that being said i mean i think as long as the ai provides like some form of safety net where you can't make any decision that's going to hurt yourself beyond some level of utility loss or however the ai wants to express that then you can play whatever games you want. That's sort of where I'm at. It's like, you yeah. should be allowed to wear like whatever color shirt you want. Like if you feel like I like red, but the AI is like, you know what? More people like blue. You should wear a blue shirt today because it'll make people like you more or something. Mm -hmm. That's a decision that maybe should be left up to you. But I don't really know where you draw the line between, like you said. Should the, you be allowed to walk through a Jewish community wearing a shirt with a swastika on it? Well, do I want the AI God stopping me? Or do I want, I don't know. That's the question. Yeah, I like, so how much could you not just impact... Like, that might make you super happy, but it might bum out everyone else. Yeah. And there's more of them being bummed than you are being happy. So, I don't know. I guess what I was getting at, though, is that this is not that easily solvable problem, right? Right. There's something to that, probably, but I don't think it's a solution, at least as formed right now. I think that was one of the things I really enjoyed about Metropolitan Man. It was at least flirting with that question. In fact, not just flirting. I think a large part of Superman's motivation was... I am the superhuman here. How do I decide what counts as terrible suffering and how much do I interfere in people's lives as yeah. opposed to letting them make their own decisions but still stopping the most horrible consequences? Mm -hmm. And I think, honestly, Superman got a pretty did a pretty decent job of it. Well, like Lois pointed out, though, he also landed at a good time. 
If he had landed there 150 years ago and there were slaves being exchanged at the harbor, would he have let them keep being enslaved? Right. Does I mean, is Superman aware that there's current slavery on Earth? I, I feel like he did his best to not upset the metis of the existing <laughs> population, right? So he didn't want to come in and immediately th- overthrow the world and be like, hey, here's a bunch of free energy and, you know, super cheap space travel and that sort of thing. So, But I think maybe he was doing the right thing. He did try and assess the situation at length before he went in and started intervening. So maybe that was actually, that does sort of tie into the... The idea of not, I guess his goal wouldn't have been in enforcing legibility, but it would be in sprinting through Chester's defenses. So, yeah, I, I think humans are easy enough to manipulate probably that the AI could just create some kind of like sporting contest that is a completely zero sum game that we would all be obsessed with. And so we'd be protected from any actual harm to ourselves, but we'd feel the drama that we're prone to feeling just by having this our whole lives would revolve around sports. We'd either be playing sports or we'd be watching sports all the time. It sounds like you're just talking about status. Because um, status is somewhat zero-sum, and we are very obsessed with that. Yeah, yeah, status is definitely a big, a big part of it. I mean, people love to be part of a team, too, even if they're not actually on that team. We live in Denver, so I think we all know Broncos fans. I feel like yeah. that your, at least the way I pictured your, your expression there of manipulating us by keeping us engaged in things that didn't actually hurt or harm us really mm-hmm. i mean that sounds like movies and video games it's like mm-hmm. people are already kind of doing that so i mean an ai is just going to build a better version of diablo 4 and we're all going to play that because it's going to be super engaging i mean i was never that big into diablo i played it for like a month but when i was pl- well, part of the reason it got ruined is because somebody came in and spammed a bunch of like super strong weapons that made the yeah. game less fun yeah. but i was telling uh my girlfriend that you know, I think at the time that's playing it, like five people had died playing this game through like de- dehydration or, or whatever. And leaving aside the possibility that they ch- decided to play Diablo knowing that they would die because they, they wanted, they would rather play for another hour than go on living the rest of their life. Uh, like the, the other interpretation of that is that they were just so engaged because the game's well calibrated to like reward you when you're getting bored and to keep you into it. And it totally does. And so she was watching. She's like, how does this keep people that engaged when people died playing? I'm like, here, watch for two minutes and see what happens. And so like, there's a, there's a brief fight with whatever mob monsters that you struggle a little bit in. And then there's ones that you struggle a lot and almost don't make it. And then you hit like a double XP shrine every three minutes or whatever. And so there's incentives every few seconds. Well, not few seconds, whatever, almost perfect amount of seconds to keep you super engaged. And, that could be refined to the point where, yeah, it's way more fun to play this game than it is to do literally anything else. Oh, yeah. Have you ever played those damn phone freemium games? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I tend to also be super stingy, so those yeah. don't suck me in, but I do know people that have been sucked in. Yeah. So yeah. The same, I mean, yeah. I or mean, I, I don't mind putting in the five. I've, I play Clash of Clans, but I've been playing like since launch. Yeah. So uh, I haven't put in any, I think I put in money around the month that it launched because everyone at work was doing it, but it was 20 bucks one time for the, I don't know, shameful amount of hours i put into this game so i feel like i i prorated that down pretty well um but yeah that in fact i was just i heard on the way here i was listening to a podcast i think clash of clans made three billion dollars last year yeah Damn. so yeah just through the little microtransactions you know hey just for a buck you can get this cool little deal well i guess what i was getting at is that people are getting dangerously close to optimizing that fun game where i hope an ai would do it non-malicious well it's not even have to be maliciously we're but, all gonna live in equestria online i yeah. mean it doesn't sound like the worst outcome yeah. right if it I is agree. as fun as it looked so yeah. I think we linked to that before, right? That was in that was friendship is optimal. Yeah, yeah. Pre- preferably the AI makes the game actually fun and not just addictive. I... Yes, and I think it did. I can't remember. It's too many specifics. In, it was too in, long ago. In Equestria, yeah. And I read two different versions of that story too. Wait, what? Yeah, there was one from the perspective of 
like a bunch of people, including the author of the game and like the one who coded the AI and stuff. Yeah. And there's one from the perspective of, I think, an individual player. Huh. Are they both by the same author? They were written stylistically similarly. Okay. I guess I'll have to make sure that they were, in fact, two different things. I could have sworn they were. I'll try and find that. Okay. All right. Let's jump on. Alrighty. Not Without Incident says, In terms of having kids, it seems like going back to previous episodes, Stephen and Inyash had agreed that a potential human life being realized is a net positive. Perhaps with some caveats. I was surprised that sort of reasoning wasn't discussed at all, with the focus being entirely on the motivations of the parent being good or bad. Yeah, I mean, all else being equal, I do feel like more people is better, because then you just get more happiness. And as long as you're not, you know, making the world worse by doing it, which is sort of implicit in, or I guess explicit in all else being equal, then yeah. But I think there's something to be considered, like, if I had a kid, I feel like it would impact my happiness adversely. And so while the net positive gain between, you know, me and two children, the two children's happiness might overcome my unhappiness, but I guess I don't feel an obligation to create as many people as possible as fast as I can, right? Otherwise, there, there's a lot of... There, I'd be spending my time very differently if I thought that was important. I spend a lot more time with the sperm bank, for one. Yeah, I think um, to the point about children making you less happy, I know everyone's not like me and everyone's not the same. I think children, to a large degree, rewire you such that like being with them and playing with them and so forth becomes like super concentrated joy juice compared to whatever else you were doing with your life before that. Like... For sure. And and so so that's that's one thing that, that is always salient to me in these conversations where I'm like I, I know I know there's like research that shows that people become less happy happy after their parents and I'm my comment on that is always like I think there's some peak shaving going on because yeah, when you're when when they're when they're little and you're losing a lot of sleep and you can't really talk to them because they're a baby, your your life is like worse seen from the outside, but also like that injection of joy into your brain when they like accidentally smile at you really kind of offsets a lot of that and then they get bigger and then they're just fun it's uh, this probably sounds somewhat condescending but like it's almost impossible to convey like the change in in, like brain stuff that goes on between before being a parent and being after being being a parent for sure and actually we talked about that we did have an episode on child rearing some time ago and that was something that i was cognizant of that like i would be reprogrammed in a way that like pushing my kid on the swing would be super rewarding in a way that pushing any random kid on the swing now would be super boring Mm -hmm. right or excuse me, not in that way. Mm-hmm. So my hesitancy, part of it is like, I just don't feel like I could give a kid a, the life that it would deserve right now. But like, I just also don't want to shake up who I am. Yeah. But that's not like, I'm not down on people who have kids. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, I, I so, get the Gandhi doesn't want to take the pill that makes him not Gandhi anymore type. Yeah. Well, yeah. in this context, though, like the pill wouldn't make me less Gandhi. It would just make me a different, different, well, yeah. different Gandhi. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah. Um, like, I don't think, I don't think I'd be a worse person. Although we had someone write in saying that they were, after we did that show that they were a parent and yet it didn't drastically change them or anything. And then they went on to give examples of how it did. Uh, <laughs> I, I want I was looking for that email actually. I, we can, I'll find it really quick. You know, we should probably save this for our parenting episode. Deal. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so not without incident says this is on the AlphaGo episode. A couple quick comments. While Master did use a single machine, that machine includes Google's NN Accelerator ASIC. I don't know what that is. Uh, which is 50 times more powerful than a CPU. So it's a bit misleading to say that it runs on a machine that anyone else thinks of when they think of a computer. Also, it's a bit misleading because any use of a neural network can be divided into two stages. Training, where it learns how to play, and inference, where it evaluates the current board state and possible moves. Inference is generally much computationally lighter, and that's all AlphaGo has to do during one of those games. 
Whereas the training takes a lot more power and a lot more time beforehand. Yeah, ASIC is application specific integrated circuit. So it's basically a chip that was made specifically for that computational task, which makes it better at that, not necessarily better overall. Oh, thank you for telling us. Sure. Awesome. The other thing is in the same context about how a human could help AlphaGo play better. Uh, I didn't think I did a great job explaining it. Master, just like earlier AlphaGo, is still ultimately reliant on a tree search algorithm. It seems likely that the human partner is essentially improving the otherwise random choices of the Monte Carlo tree search component, even if they are much less capable at evaluating board positions than neural networks. This would explain why a player much weaker than AlphaGo can still improve its play when they work together. Makes sense. I'll just take that at face value. Okay, cool. That is all I had. I think you had one comment that you had also wanted to read. That was actually the one about the child rearing. Oh, it was about the child. Um, okay, so we're going to yeah. wait until next time. I can just pull out the quote because I don't want to make it sound like... I'll give them a chance to respond to me saying that you said that they said it didn't rewire them that much. Mm -hmm. And then I said they gave examples of exactly how it did. Mm -hmm. And their quote was exactly... I'll say that I never felt like a, a real adult until I had a child. And I think that it was maybe that I felt nothing in my life really mattered up until that point. Once you have someone really important to you that is completely dependent on you, it adds a weight to your figurative soul, and that weight gives your previous life or makes your previous life feel inconsequential. So that to me does make it sound like they changed their life and like it rewired them considerably, right? All right. Like I don't know if I'd want to be changed into a person that thought my entire life up until now had been pointless. Although that's sort of what we we're talking about with you know upgrading better brains and minds, right? We would look back and be like, I can't believe I satisfied living like that. Maybe that's what it like being a parent mm. is. For what it's worth, I don't feel like my whole life prior to having kids was pointless. It's just, it, it was a bit like being a different person. I will grant that. Not pointless, though. I don't know. Every, I think everybody's different, though. I mean, even other parents I talk to, this is spectrum, I think. That's good to keep in mind. So, uh, I believe we're done at this point. I think so. Okay. Inuyash, you wanted to plug something? Oh, yes. Which you can... uh, I have that collection of short stories that is out. Red Legacy and Other Stories. And it is available at Amazon and various other places where you can buy ebooks and physical copy at Amazon as well. Cool. Now I want to thank Matt again for joining us. Did you have anything you'd like to plug for yourself? Yeah, sure. I co-host a podcast about the web serial Worm, which uh, I anticipate at least some of the listeners of this show uh, have read. Um, it's uh, me, a, a longtime fan of the story, guiding a first-time reader through the story Worm, arc by arc, and every week we read a new arc and we do a close reading of it, plot synopsis, and uh, kind of detailed literary analysis. It's really fun, and I would really appreciate it if you would check it out. Now, I recall when I read, like, the first 12 arcs or whatever, arcs are actually pretty damn long, right? The, yeah, they, they get to be, like, 100,000 words long eventually. Yeah, how, um, how long does this podcast go if you do an in-depth analysis on every arc? Um, so far, they average about two hours each. And, uh, well, so let, let, me, let me stop myself. Some of the arcs we've had to split up into two episodes, and then in, the, in those cases, usually the episodes are getting to be two hours each. So, uh, for example, this last week, I believe we released the uh, first half of arc 15 last week, and we're doing the second half of arc 15 this week. Yeah, four hours per arc is actually where it's getting up to. Pretty, it's pretty dense, mm -hmm. actually. So was Worm, though, so that, that's fair. Yeah. Um, and what was the URL for that? Or the it, so the yes, thank you for asking. The name of the podcast is We've Got Worm. <laughs> uh, we're on Twitter at Got Worm Pod. Our website is Daily Planet Films. That's D A L Y, and you can find all all of uh, me and my my partners' uh, uh, work in terms of film reviews there, as well as the podcast. Cool, awesome. So you also do film reviews? 
Yeah. Um, right, right now we're more focusing on the podcast in terms of how we spend our time. But yeah, I've written some film reviews and, and book reviews. And uh, the other guy I work with, is um, he, he does a lot more film reviews. Yeah. Excellent. Sounds awesome. Daily Planet or the, yeah. the, the Daily Planet? Uh, Daily Planet Films is the website. Right DailyPlanetFilms.com. Cool. Yeah, the, the other guy's name is Scott Daly, and he, he started it. So it's Got sounds it. great. Okay, so you can comment on this episode or others if you want at our website, BayesianConspiracyPodcast.com. Uh, or you can go to the subreddit at slash r slash the Bayesian Conspiracy. Or you can support us on Patreon if you want. Or leave us a review at iTunes. All those things help a lot. We also have to thank our audio engineer who is awesome. That's right. Thanks again to Kyle Moore for finally bringing our audio quality into the 2010s. Yeah, <laughs> at least. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. Awesome. Thank you all for listening. See you next episode. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. I'm always bad at saying bye. I came into this feeling much more coherent.